I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Joanne Tubbs Kelly, author of Walking Him Home, Helping My Husband Die with Dignity. It's no secret we have to make some tough decisions with regard to loved one's health and care as they age. As more and more states legalize medical aid in dying, the conversation surrounding America's healthcare system and the choice to end suffering is growing. Joanne Kelly chronicles her journey coming to terms with her kind, funny husband's terminal illness and his quest to decide what his death looks like, despite her desire to keep him alive. Alan and Joanne marry in midlife and live a happily ever after existence until at age 69, Alan is diagnosed with a rare, fatal, neurodegenerative illness. As he becomes increasingly disabled and dependent on others and decreasingly able to find joy in life, he decides he wants to end his suffering using Colorado's medical aid and dying law. Tender and heartfelt, this is one woman's story about loving extravagantly and being loved in kind. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on today, Joanne. Thank you, Catherine. I'm very delighted to um, that you invited me to join you today. Well, my show today is sort of just not sort of. We are discussing the beginning of we've discussed the beginning of life and now the end of life. And uh, unfortunately, in my experience with friends and colleagues, this is as a baby boomer, I'm seeing this more and more. The situation that you are in with your husband. And it doesn't get resolved well, usually. So let's talk about your experience, because in the end, you were able to utilize the Colorado medical aid in dying law. Um, how did you get to that point? I mean, obviously, this is what your book is about. Right. Um you know, Alan had always said, long before he was diagnosed with um, multiple system atrophy, he had always said, we treat our pets better than we treat our elders, and with the idea being that when our pets um, get old and decrepit, or if they're suffering, we, we help them um, make the transition. But we, we haven't traditionally been able to do that for... Um, people, people who are dying in our in our society. But um, back in 1997, Oregon was the first state to to enact a medical aid and dying law, and so they have a good solid 25 years of experience with medical aid and dying. And since then, uh, 10 more jurisdictions, um, nine more states in the District of Columbia have has joined Oregon um, to pass laws of, um, allowing medical aid and dying. So we were very fortunate that we lived in a state um, that allowed medical aid and dying. We, we supported the legislation in 2016, and um, Alan was just overjoyed when Colorado passed that law. So I was not at all surprised when um, his illness became um, advanced, that he wanted to take advantage of the law himself. And you lived in Colorado, so that makes a huge difference if you can do and ha- take a- advantage of that kind of, of treatment or 
uh, of that law, if you live there, I mean, unfortunately for many people, they're not going to be able to do that because they're going, if one, I don't know what the laws or the statutes are, but, you know, if you live in a different state where you can't do that, um, then you are moving to, may move to a place that's unfamiliar there's not a lot of support, uh, which is not the case when you live in a state that that's that's passed that law. But right. let's, I, I want to get back to the your relationship with Alan. And I, I think as I read in the beginning, I mean, you didn't want him to die. He wanted to die with dignity or he wanted to die the way he wanted to die. Can you? Right. Talk, yeah. So tell us about his the progression of the illness and at what point he decided this is not what I want to do. I don't want to to live this way. And, you know, the implications of what that would mean and then your attitude and how that changed in terms of how you saw his dying, whether taking advantage of this medical aid and dying or dying, I don't want to say a natural death because I think it becomes unnatural many times at the Uh end. Uh, (laughs) So that's a long question. (laughs) <laughs> well, I think I get the gist of it. Okay, um, good. So Alan, um, Alan was just a lovely man, and I, I was blessed to have met him um, when I did. We, we were married for 22 and a half years, um, and I really didn't want him to die. I, um, I wanted him to be in my life, and... It took me a long time to finally come to the realization that um, he was going to die whether I wanted him to or not. I didn't have a choice about that. The only choice I had was whether or not I was going to support him in his quest to die with dignity. He wanted to die in his own bedroom. He had had been living at a... um, nursing home for the last three months of his life because I could no longer take care of him at home. But um, he wanted to die in his own bedroom surrounded by people who loved him. And um, so um, when push came to shove, I arranged for that to happen. Um, I arranged an ambulance to bring him home. Uh, He was in a wheelchair, so um, getting him um, around was not easy. But an ambulance brought him home and um, put him in his bed, and he was just so delighted to be home. Um, And we had um, our minister and Alan's two daughters, and a couple of his granddaughters came as well, and a couple of very close friends came. Um, One set of friends uh, were here to support us rather than to support Alan. So they, they made chicken soup for us and they made cookies for us and they, you know, they hung up our coats and they brought, made sure that we were drinking tea or water and those sorts of things. So um, we surrounded Alan with people who loved him and he died a very, very peaceful, beautiful death. Um, so, you know, when you were interviewing Julie Lithkop Haynes the other day, when you were talking about adulting, you said, if they love them, referring to parents, they would let them go, referring to their children. Well, I think this is another case where as a spouse, if you love your spouse, 
you will let them go, and you will help them go in the way that they want to go. Because too often, our medical system just keeps um, providing uh, means to keep you alive when there's really um, not a whole lot of benefit to being alive. So... um, People hang on for a lot longer than they necessarily, uh, than they would if they weren't being treated by the medical system. So having the option of medical aid in dying is a real blessing to people who are suffering. And for Alan, the suffering wasn't necessarily physical, uh, although he did have a lot of pain when he sat in his wheelchair. Um, But his suffering was... He hated being reliant on other people. He his he didn't have autonomy. He didn't have agency in his life. He had to have people taking care of him, and he also had lost the ability to um, find joy in his life. Um, and Alan was a joyful person. He loved to tell jokes. He loved to make people make people smile. Um, And he could no longer talk in a way that people could understand him easily. He sounded like someone who was falling down drunk because the part of his brain that was affected by this illness was the same part of the brain that is affected by alcohol. So um, he was having trouble. He couldn't even make people smile because it was hard for him to tell a joke. So he lost so much of the joy in his life, the things that made him really happy. So his suffering wasn't just physical. It was also this, um, I don't exactly know what to call it. But well, this, this, I think people do think of it of as just joy. physical, you know, just physical, and it's not, as you say. It's who you are. It's your spirit, your emotion, your right. your all all of the things that make you who you are are gone or missing exactly. or dissolving, I guess is the word. But can we just, and, and I, I, I know some, Unfortunately, many people in that position, a friend who died of ovarian cancer, just a horrible, horrible death. And with all this false hope and false hope that came from her medical practitioners and it it, uh, a terrible way to die. Someone I had known for so many years and it was was painful to watch her die that way. Uh, So uh, because we didn't really define it, but medical aid in dying, what is that? Talk to us exactly, specifically. Okay, you, he, Alan was at home. He's in his own bed. He's with you, his friends, and uh, your uh, minister. But what exactly is the process? Medical aid in dying. What What does that is that an? Tell us what it is. So medical aid in dying is offered to people whose death is inevitable. So they're going to die from a disease process within the next six months. Um, so you have to have a terminal diagnosis. You um, have to have decisional capacity, and that means that you can make decisions on your own behalf, so good decisions on your own behalf. Um, and two doctors have to um, attest to the fact that both that you have a terminal diagnosis, that you are expected to die within six months, and that you have decisional capacity. And the third requirement is that you have to have the ability to self-administer the drug cocktail. No, you, you're not allowed to have help from anyone in drinking the cocktail. Um, 
if you have a feeding tube, you have to be able to pour the cocktail into the feeding tube yourself. So um, that is um, what distinguishes it really from euthanasia, because in euthanasia, somebody else administers the drug. Um, but so then, the Joanne, I, I'm stopping you there, but timing is everything because you could get to one could get to the point if you don't make that decision that the your the patient or the loved one won't be able to make that decision whereas maybe a week before he or she would have been able to do that because once you can't then you can't do that it has is that it i mean that you're absolutely right and with alan his illness um made it both the decisional capacity question and the question about self-administering the drug. So we we met with the palliative care team um, about a year before he died, and that was just to sort of start the process. He he wanted to find out everything he needed to know so he could be sure and be ready at the right time. And they made it sound at that point in time that it would be really questionable for him with his particular illness. It would be difficult for him to find that exact sweet spot. And so the following August, so that was in January, the following August, um, we met with his doctor, his uh, neurologist, and asked if they were if they could would recommend that he be placed in hospice because Alan wanted to donate his brain to um, to research about the particular his particular illness um, and and in order so if you're in hospice when you die, Hospice declares you dead, and your brain goes autom- and your body goes automatically to the um, mortuary, which is where the brain harvesting takes place. But if you die and you're not in hospice, you you go to the coroner's office. Your body goes to the coroner's office, and they can keep you for days. But the brain the brain has to be harvested within 24 hours. And so Alan was really anxious to be able to die in hospice. And so in August, he asked his doctor um, to recommend him for hospice, and his doctor agreed to do that. But the thing about being recommended for hospice also is that there's the assumption that you have six months to live. So at that point in time, Alan was free to apply for medical aid in dying because his doctor had said, you have six months to live. So um, Alan applied, let's see, his, we, we started the paperwork in September, and then in October, he had, in early October, he had his official meeting with the palliative care team where he was evaluated to make sure that he met all of the criteria. And then he was referred back to his doctor who also had to um, evaluate him to make sure he met all the criteria. And then uh, three weeks after that, that we finally got notice that he was approved for medical aid and dying. Joanne, you know, it sounds like a very 
exhausting process under the best of circumstances. And here, absolutely, I mean, and I yeah. don't think Alan would have been able to manage it without my help. Uh, it would see it would be impossible, it seems to me. So here you are, a supportive spouse, and if you don't have that, if one doesn't have that, or doesn't have that level of of uh, connection with another person, this probably wouldn't be able to do this. I, I would assume. I mean, you two had to work together. And here's another question: What if you have a partner who doesn't want you to do this and is not supportive? Uh, what happens then? Uh, because... Well, then you, you probably would want to find somebody other than your partner to help you through the process. <laughs> yeah. And I can certainly understand that partners would be very, very reluctant because I was for a long time until I finally made the leap into believing that um, it was the most loving thing that I could do for my husband mm-hmm. was to help him die the way he wanted to die. Letting go. Yeah, letting go. Writing this book, obviously, is really important. And and the one thing you said, you you started like a year early. And I I think that if, just I'm thinking about it now in terms of a societal issue, if we start talking about this and reading your book and books like that, we can start talking about it years earlier. Like this, the way I... absolutely. And that will make a huge difference in terms of the person themselves, family, and the people who, you know, are connected to the the person. Because, it, it, you know, as you begin to talk about it, you become aware, you write it down, you talk, it makes it real. These sort of healthcare directives aren't really that helpful, I don't think, because they're just a piece of paper and no one looks at them until the person is in the hospital and, okay, what did, mm-hmm. what did my partner or parent or child, what would they want me to do? You really have to talk about it. Obviously, that's why you wrote the book. But um, what about the after? Well, actually, yeah, go ahead. Um, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because whenever um, I've been a reader all my life, and whenever I face, I'm faced with a new situation, the first thing I do is find a book about it um, so that I can see how other people have handled uh, the particular situation that that I am in. But when I went looking for a book about a spouse dying using medical aid and dying, I didn't find one. And so I decided to write it. Um, I decided that it was a really important thing to help other people um, going through this process to have some kind of a roadmap, and I don't, I don't pretend that my book is the roadmap. It is a roadmap, but I'm hoping that it will be really helpful for people who have to make these hard decisions. I believe, and um, you can look this up after the show if you're interested. But I, I think there's a law in the Netherlands when you reach the age of 75 whether you're sick or not, and you've decided I've had enough, that you can end it. You can end your life. Like I can't, that this is, I've lived 75 years and um, I, I don't want to live anymore. And uh, you can legally, I, I think it has more to do with euthanasia. You can do so, you can terminate your life. That's um, the, I'm not, yeah. I'm not totally clear on the laws in the various countries, but there are several countries in Europe and also in in Canada that allow um, p- 
people to take their lives um, for various reasons. And yes, euthanasia is practiced in um, Switzerland, it's practiced in um, Belgium and Holland, and um, I think there are a couple more um, countries. Oh, Australia, there are several, several states in Australia that have approved it. So more and more of the world is seeing the benefit of helping people end their lives the way they'd like to, for sure. Did you, after Alan died, did you have any, I mean, I think this is a nat, can be a natural reaction, even though you felt obviously he did the right thing, you did the right thing. Were there any moments of regrets that you thought, oh, maybe, or maybe I shouldn't have, maybe I should like, and I don't mean something that was long lasting, but I mean, right after the event. Yeah. Right after he died. Mostly right after he died, I felt relief because he stayed alive longer than he wanted to. Um, but he he had made the decision that he was ready to die in early December. And I asked him if he could wait until after the holidays so that his daughters and his granddaughters and I wouldn't be um, grieving for the rest of our lives at Christmas time. And he decided that, yes, he could wait until January to die. And so I felt sort of responsible that I had encouraged him to suffer more, to to spend another month suffering when he could have died earlier. So I was relieved that that he finally got the rest, the the peace that he was looking for when he died. Most of my regrets were before he died. I just was, I really struggled with um, making the decision. And this was a decision that I had to make over and over again to help him, to support him. Because I kept going back to, but I want him to live, but I want him to live. So, but I, I'd like to go back to what you were saying about. Um, Having the having the discussion with your family members early, um, I wanted to point out to people that there's a um, a nonprofit organization called Compassion and Choices that has really good tools for having the discussion. And there's also um, the Conversation Project. It's something people can look up on the web that has tools for having the conversation with your loved ones about how they want to die. So. D- do they do they want to be kept alive as long as possible, or when death is inevitable, um, do they want to just let things take their course? So, well, Joanne, so thanks I for sharing that book with us. We have one minute left, so I want to also make oh. sure that we know that I repeat the name of your book, Walking Him Home, Helping My Husband Die with Dignity, and it, the author is Joanne Tubbs Kelly. So, Joanne. I mean, so much more to talk about, but give us a website and or websites we can go to to continue the conversation. I encourage people to go to joannetubbskelly.com. So J-O-A-N-N-E-T-U-B-B-S-K-E-L-L-Y. And they'll learn lots more about my book and where they can get it. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Great conversation. Thank you for having me.
I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 